Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. When you first start working, you think that if you have good ideas and you work really hard, then you'll succeed. But it's a lot harder than that. You have to learn how to play the game. This is Game Plan. Hi, I'm Rebecca Greenfield. And I'm Francesca Levy. This week, we're talking about how to really get things done at work. Oh, 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 I know. Um, you have a great idea. Uh, tell everyone your great idea. And then everyone does it. And then it's done. No, that's, that, that's not going to work. That's wrong. No, no. Because of this fun little thing called bureaucracy. Oh, damn. Yeah. So we work in this world where we have to work with other people. And they have competing interests and agendas. And there's a hierarchy. And it's something you need to learn to navigate if you want to get your ideas through. I've, yeah, every, I learned everybody's this. had this rude awakening where you have some great idea or you have a solution to a problem everyone's having and you think that all you have to do is get a few people to understand your idea and then it's off to the races. But actually what tends to happen is you have half a dozen meetings and 14 different email chains and six months go by and you're still exactly where you started and you have no idea how it happened that way. Yeah, and it's frustrating because it seems like a no-brainer, but you just didn't get the right person to buy into your idea or... It just got lost in this jumble of human beings. Right. And so how did we end up in this place where we have no idea who's owning what aspect of which job and too many middle managers and all of these culprits that we love to target when we rail against bureaucracy? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) The hierarchy is an outdated organizational structure that goes back to the Industrial Revolution. It was a way of organizing and dividing labor. So it would be the most efficient way of doing things when people had very defined tasks. But now most of us don't work in those kind of economies. Right? Like uh, So like an assembly line. Right. An assembly line. You put example. your little part on the widget and yeah. then the widget goes to the other guy who glues it to a different widget. Right. And then there's a, someone overseeing those group of people and et cetera, et cetera, until you have the big boss at top. But now we work in these, a lot of people work in the knowledge economy and the creative economy. And research has found that hierarchies when it comes to those kind of types of work can lead to more conflict. And I mean, we've experienced this. You can see why there's people jockeying for their ideas. And and it's not exactly clear who's in charge of signing off on what ideas or whether they really have the leverage to get it through whatever systems they need to get it through. Yeah. And there's been such a backlash recently towards hierarchies that there are all these uh, experiments in alt organizational structures that try to get rid of hierarchy. So the most popular one is called holacracy, which is a really is that silly name <laughs> where your hologram goes to work for you instead of you? Yeah, I would love that. It's funny because it's even more complicated than hierarchy, but it's allegedly a flat structure. So there's no managers. People work in these things called circles. I went to Medium, which used to use this to see them do it. And they have the these media special, company Medium. Yeah, the media company Medium. And they have these special meetings so that the good ideas do rise above. So it's not just like personality speaking, etc. It's an interesting idea. But the funny thing is that there's still a system you have to navigate, 
Right. And you say they used to use holacracy. So what happened? Yeah, about a year ago, they gave up on it because it's complicated and confusing. And there is this term called the tyranny of structurelessness, which is that when you try to remove structures, like new ones pop up, you know? Right. And and then it's even worse because they're kind of invisible. So it's even more opaque who really has the authority to boss other people around. And people kind of know, but they aren't allowed to say it out loud. Yeah. And again, that that sounds like something you have to learn to navigate if you want your good idea to rise above the rest. When it comes right down to it, no matter what kind of structure you work in, if you work with more than two or three people, there's probably a system that you have to learn and you have to kind of have tricks and ways of doing things that help you navigate that system. And our guest today is going to teach us some of the ways that we can get our ideas through and become more popular and well-liked at work. We have here with us Derek Thompson. He is a writer at The Atlantic and, full disclosure, a friend of mine who I used to work with. He wrote a book called Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. Your book is about what makes things popular, and the book is about pop culture, so like music and art and politicians. But in the book, you talk about this thing called Maya, which is the underlying principle of what makes anything and maybe even our work ideas popular. Can you explain what that is? Yes, Maya, M-A-Y-A. This principle comes from the father of industrial design. His name is Raymond Lowy. He was a French orphan. He comes over to the U.S. in the late 19-teens. He starts off as an artist, and he gradually gets into engineering and design. And he eventually designs uh, the modern Greyhound bus, the modern car. His 1951 Studebaker was named the finest automotive design of the 20th century. He designed the modern tractor. He designed the modern kitchen. He even designed the habitability of the first NASA spaceship, the interior of the first NASA spaceship, the concept of the portal where you can look through the glass and see Earth, that was his idea. So literally everything from toothpicks so spaceships to didn't, space stations. Didn't, weren't going to have windows before They him. weren't. No, they, they brought on Raymond Lowy because this was the first time they were going to send people up into space. And Raymond Lowy was the expert at designing things that people liked. So they said, how do people want to live in space? Help us understand how to design a habitat on a spaceship that people would want to live in, feel comfortable living in. And his theory for why people like what they like was called Maya, M-A-Y-A, most advanced yet acceptable. And his insight was that people are essentially in tension between two opposing ideas. They are neophilic, they like new things, and they are neophobic. They don't like things that are too new. They are afraid of new things. And so he had this amazing ability of marrying familiarity and surprise and understanding and anxiety into all of his designs. And one of my theses in the book is that this principle helps us understand basically the popularity of everything in pop culture. We like new songs with old chord structures. We like new movies with old characters, sequels, adaptations, and reboots. And we even like ideas and articles and podcasts that express a new and fascinating ways, uh, concepts that we've already somewhat intuited and so therefore are a little old. And so it's this marriage of newness and oldness uh, that is sort of the the God particle of popularity. So I want to imagine how this might play out in the workplace. So like, say you're in a meeting and you have this idea of yours and it's an idea that you want people 
to buy into. How does this principle work with that? Right. So you're starting now with a really new crazy idea, right? That people don't like because, as you said, it's just it's too new. Um, this right. is a I want to get rid of all the chairs in the office, and I want to get rid of all the chairs all the in the time. office. Great. Yes, exactly. Very new idea so that people stand, they have better like circulation, that. they live longer. So Raymond Lowy faced this problem all the time. Uh, he thought that the mid 20th century was absolutely disgusting. That the designs of this era were totally gross. Uh, he hated the way that trains looked uh, in the early 20th century. They looked sort of like Thomas the Tank Engine. They had these really garish protrusions and they're, with their chimneys and um, uh, and their, their sort of spindly design. I think a lot of children would, would disagree with yeah. you on Thomas the Tank Engine. Yes, yeah, don't get this because they're overly familiar angry. with Thomas the Tank Engine. Um, uh, and he wanted trains to look like we now sort of envision them, uh, particularly sort of, you know, the fastest trains that sort of look like the shape of a bullet fired through water, right? That sort of sleek, smooth shell. So he pitches this in the 1930s to Pennsylvania Railroad, and they say, no, that's a terrible idea. That, that looks way too weird. We don't want that. He pitches it again a year later and again a year later. And again, a year later, and he starts off making the difference between his ideal design and the current design of trains really subtle. And then he just pushes them along the curve. He shows ideas, gives them designs that look more and more and more like the current look of trains, this sort of this bullet fired through water. And eventually the executives at Pennsylvania Railroad become extremely familiar and they fall in love with his designs because they've seen them more and more and more and they sort of walk toward his ideas. So what does this have to do with work? Well, if you're trying to get all the chairs out of a conference room, you don't start by saying we're going to have an edict that says no more chairs in a conference room. Maybe you start by taking away one or two chairs so a few people have to stand up. And then you take away a few more chairs so a few more people have to stand up. And then when people are used to being in conference rooms where a quarter to half the room is standing up, they begin to associate people standing in conference rooms with what is normal, with what is familiar. And then you can take away a few more chairs, a few more chairs, and then eventually you have a conference room table and no chairs, and you have conference rooms uh, that are just purely standing affairs. And so what he would say is don't introduce this new idea in its purely new form. Give people a little bit of the familiar at first and then a little bit less, 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 and gradually expose them to your idea. This kind of happened with standing desks now that I hear you talking about it, yeah. right? There were some weirdos who piled boxes on their desks. Actually, Derek, I believe you did that. I did. When I worked I had, with you. I had an Amazon box on my desk. Yeah. And then there were some pioneers who had requested standing desks and now workplaces are starting to give you the option of sit-stand, and it's becoming much more normal to have the sit-stand desk. It's not just some peculiarity of some weirdo person who wants to stand up now. Yeah. I think standing desk is actually a perfect like entryway into the conversation. But the principle has much more serious applications, right? Let's think about something like parental leave policies. There's certainly a time in the U.S. where the concept of you know private companies having parental leave was extremely rare and crazy. And what had to happen is that a few companies that could afford the policy had to introduce it. And then media reporters had to report on these parental leave policies and expose more people to the concept that, hey, maybe we should be a little bit nicer to not only mothers, but also fathers who want to take leave when they have children. And then as people become more familiar with the concept, they begin to equate familiarity with normality and fact. And what is familiar becomes normal, and what is normal becomes conflated with the good. And so once again, I think that you know, as the idea becomes familiarized, it, it becomes more powerful in culture. Yeah, and then we have candidates on both sides of the aisle talking about parental leave, which was unthinkable Yes, one political cycle ago, which is pretty insane. So what about the opposite example? What about when you have an idea that everybody else feels is too old school? 
Like, what if I want Becca to write a story about parental leave? Mm-hmm. And Becca says, Been done. Been done by me and many other people. How do we make the familiar idea sing as a story? Yes. I, this is such a, this is such a, a, an awesome question. So this is, first of all, a question that I face all the time in the book because I'm writing uh, in Hitmakers about pieces of sort of pop culture icons. I'm writing about uh, Impressionism and Star Wars and Snapchat and Facebook and things that people have read a lot about. So the key was, how do I bring each story to a bit of a surprising place, right? And in many ways, I think that one of the challenges of writing things or making things that are interesting is that interesting isn't just purely new and it's not just purely familiar. Interesting always takes something that you're a little bit that you're a little bit familiar in and then pushes it a, a little bit further into the future, makes it a little bit advanced, and then that's when your brain sort of hooks onto it and says, huh, this is a really cool idea. So if you're writing uh, a story about parental leave policies that comes after thousands of stories about parental leave policies, right, the trick becomes, all right, how do I find an angle that no one's written about this before? Um, maybe, you know, we're talking about, we, uh, Becca just brought up the fact that uh, Ivanka Trump, um, rather surprisingly for the Republican Party, um, made parental leave uh, one of her uh, items in the Republican National Convention speech. Um, Maybe the interesting take isn't uh, all of the liberal uh, companies and, you know, tech companies that have parental leave policies, but is parental leave policy now becoming a Republican issue as well? Is a surprising group taking on a familiar cause? And then you begin to see, oh, yeah, that is something that someone who's interested and these ideas uh, might, might like to read about. So you, you've touched on another one of your principles that you talk about in the book that, so we have Maya, which is one thing, but then also repetition and how that can be really important in getting people to buy into your ideas. Yeah, I, there's a chapter about the psychology of music and one of the most uh, basic principles of music is this idea of repetition. It's true even uh, of just speaking. Uh, if I have uh, a sentence and I start repeating it again, start repeating it again, start repeating it again, <laughs> start repeating it again, the brain starts to hear, and you can't help it. Repetition distinguishes the cacophony from music. It transforms sound into music. And this is true not only uh, for rhythms and guitar playing, but it's also true for speech. Every ancient Greek rhetorical device is essentially a form of repetition. You have anaphora, which is repetition at the beginning of a sentence. Uh, Winston Churchill, we shall fight them in the air. We shall fight them on the landing fields. Repetition at the end of a sentence, uh, Abraham Lincoln, government of the people, by the people, for the people. But the most powerful example, and the one that I think shows up a lot in uh, in memos uh, and in really persuasive speech, even around the office, is called antimetaboly, which is an A-B-B-A structure. Uh, JFK, ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country, or in an office setting, uh, the problem with your editing isn't too much criticism. The problem with your editing is not enough constructive criticism. And I do think that... So wait, can you back up and explain, like break down the A, B, B, A oh, sure, yeah. in one of those examples? Yeah, sure. So uh, let's take uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, women's rights are human rights, and human rights are women's rights. Got a it. is B, B is A. Got it, okay. Ask not what your country can do for you, A, B... Ask what you, B, can do for your country, A. And so this A, B, B, A structure is called chiasmus or antimetaboly, and it is absolutely rampant in political rhetoric. But the magic of this as a matter of persuasion is precisely that it turns an otherwise uncatchy idea 
into musical language. And people sometimes fall in love with the music before they even process the substance. This can be a dangerous thing when it's sort of on a a grand political scale. But right now we're simply talking about, you know, the office setting. And so I do think that there are lots of examples where when people have, you know, an issue with a boss or an issue with a colleague, um, sometimes the most persuasive way uh, to make that case is precisely to make it with a little bit of musical language. You know, the problem with your editing isn't too much criticism. The problem with your editing is not enough constructive criticism. The problem, like the issue isn't that you talk too much in the office. The issue is that you talk too much when I'm on the phone. This ability to sort of establish an idea by initially establishing its counterpoint is like a very, very uh, Mm. uh, used and tried and true way of making the idea click. Yeah, we often talk about compliment sandwiches, but we mean compliment a B B A S. What would we call that? I'm not sure. <laughs> but compliment abbas. Com- uh, compliment abbas. Compliment yeah. abbas. Yeah, that. Yeah, it's a good management tool. So if Becca wants to sell her great parental leave story idea now, she has to figure out a way to talk about it with an A B B A pitch, right? Parental or, leave is in a women's issue. Women's issues are our parental parental leave. leave. <laughs> we, we might have to work on it a right, little. Right, 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 right. But yeah, but sure. But something like um, right, uh, uh, right. Well, you would say parental leave isn't a women's issue. Parental leave is a family issue. Or parental leave isn't a, isn't a mother's issue. Parental leave is a father's issue. Um, that there there are ways of of establishing the idea, even in surprising ways, that use precisely this kind of antithetical, slightly musical language. That's actually a great tip that that goes well beyond just journalists in the newsroom trying to pitch stories. Because I feel like there's lots of meetings where you want to get something out of it, and you'd have to prepare ahead of time with what you say. Yes. Like so, if you want to go ask your boss for a raise, you tend to think, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to talk about all the work I did, and I'm going to say this and I'm going to say this. When maybe all you really need to do is come up with a really catchy four-word phrase about how hard you've been working and why you deserve. I a mean, raise. one thing that I absolutely find from meetings and these sort of conversations with people about, you know, whether it's salary or responsibilities, like the meetings only come away with you. You only come away with a one-sentence summary anyway. Right. Right. Like either you're getting the raise or you're not. Either you are getting this new responsibility or you're not or the uh, it's 70 percent chance you're going to get it or 30 percent. You know, all these meetings are always incredibly easily summarizable. And so I'm constantly thinking like, well, if the outcome of the meeting was one sentence, maybe I should have gone into the meeting with one sentence like that. It's it's, I should have focused it by saying it's just about this. Right. Um, The problem with my job aren't the responsibilities that I have. The problem with my job are the responsibilities that I don't have and want. And so. Right. And so you just very clearly say, I want to keep what I'm doing and add a little bit more. Wait, did, you just did an ABBA yeah, you thing. Just did uh, that's a, yeah, you just did it. Yeah, that's yeah, a little wow. bit of genesis. There Give you go. Give that man yeah, a raise. Pro. Yeah. And well, more you, responsibilities. You, you, you write the book. Yeah. All, all you can do is talk this way. My friends are absolutely horrified by my language because now I only <laughs> exclusively talk uh, through ABBAs and they refuse and to they have beers with me. Completely bend to your will and do everything you <laughs> want. Also, I'm They're constantly persuasive. giving you raises. It's yeah. weird. From all my friends, like, you'll even pay me. You gave me an enormous amount of money. So we've been talking about how to make your ideas more popular, but are there things in the book to make you a more popular or well-liked or respected person at work? Yeah, I, I think there are I think there are two ways at this question. Um, the first is that the very first chapter of my book is called The Power of Exposure. And it's this idea that, as we've discussed, uh, we tend to like things more the more we see them. 
a very old classic example is when Impressionist art came out in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, people were absolutely horrified by it and they thought it was disgusting. But now you show any six-year-old a picture of Monet's water lilies and they run to it and say, oh, wow, how great. Uh, they're, they're used to seeing this kind of art. They're, they're used to associating it with fame and, and beauty. Right, didn't um, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring like cause riots? Right, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Or you could say the same about rock and roll. Uh, it was This was um, horrifying race music in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And now we think, and then it became mainstream, and now we think of it as old-fashioned. So you have these these hype cycles. Things are too radical, then perfectly radical, and then overly familiar. All right. So what does this have to do with popularity in the office? Abraham Lincoln has this great quote: "I don't like that man. I should get to know him better." And it's this lovely idea that I think we've all had. We've all had this experience where there's someone in the office that we think is a little bit weird. We think might even be mean. We think might dislike us, and then we have like one beer with them. You know, like one long meeting with them. We tell our story. They tell theirs. And we stop thinking of them as this radical beast. We're like, oh, they're just a human being like us. They're going through their own war. They have their own problems. And of course we can get along. And becoming just a little bit more familiar with some of these people at work makes us like them more. So the first idea would be if you are a little bit of a weirdo, and I'm sure there are some weirdos listening uh, in the <laughs> podcast, um, understand that a little bit of availability simply makes people like you more. The second thing that I, that I thought about, particularly in relation to the book, is that uh, you know popularity in the office uh, or in any setting really can have sort of two definitions. There's likability and there's status. Likability is is sort of is just a sheer volume play, and then you know status is, is a little bit more intensity. So in the book I talk about how like if you have a culture with millions of people reading Us Weekly, but none of them talk about Us Weekly at parties. Um, but then in some elite parties, you have a lot of people talking about things like uh, Thomas Piketty's Capital, but never reading past page five. Then what is the bigger effect on culture? Us Weekly, which is the likability play, or Capital, which is the status play. And I think in the office, you know, people want different things. Some people want to be likable. That's their goal. Other people are like the reality TV star who says, I'm not here to make friends, I'm here to win, and they care more about status. So when thinking about office place popularity, I think it's important to distinguish between between status and likability. And also, I think it's worth pointing out that we haven't brought this up, but being popular and well-liked and having status can be extremely gendered, and a woman doing these things might come off different than a man. 100%. My God, yeah. My guess would be, without having the research right in front of me, that for uh, purely cultural reasons, uh, women in the office might feel like they have to be likable more than they have to nakedly pursue status. Whereas for men, it's sort of culturally acceptable to baldly pursue status at issue popularity. In movies, for example, Hollywood screenwriters uh, face this challenge a lot. Uh, Very strong uh, female characters are sometimes seen very negatively by audiences, whereas this, you take the same line and you put it in, the, in a male executive's mouth, and he seems like a badass. He seems really cool, and you put posters of him on your on your dorm room wall, like uh, uh, you know Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. But you think about something like you know Devil Wears Prada, an incredibly strong female character, uh, Miranda Priestly. She says a lot of things. She does a lot of things that uh, if a man did it, we wouldn't consider it weird at all. But she's portrayed as a little bit of a B word. 
And I think there's a reason why there's a scene in that movie where Anne Hathaway opens the door and sees Meryl Streep crying over the dissolution of her marriage. The screenwriters needed that because audiences want to think, oh, the strong woman isn't the real woman. There's a crack in the exoskeleton and you can see the vulnerability belief. And that's the real Miranda Priestly. She's actually vulnerable. Audiences need to see vulnerability in women in a way they don't need to in men. And uh, of course, that has all sorts of implications in the office place when men and women are competing for the exact same jobs. So it sounds like before you try to go out and get what you want in the office, you really have to think about exactly what it is you want, whether you're trying to get a project done or whether you need status or how much status you actually need to get that thing. And your book has given us so much to think about in that respect. So thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, that was really interesting. And one thing that surprised me was how much we ended up talking about popularity and likability and being liked. But as Derek's research shows, there's an intimate relationship between being liked and actually getting things done around the office. Yeah. And that reminds me of a kind of unfortunate thing that happened to me in my first job. And I've I've mentioned this before, but I had this idea of, you know, if I'm just good, I'll succeed. And I'm at my first job. And a few weeks in, this man pulled me aside, who I'd been working with. And he said, you know, if you are less salty, you'll do much better at work. Like you need to change your attitude, which was unfortunate that he said that to me and obviously stung my ego. But I did change my attitude. And he was right. I started having more pitches get through and my stories did better and editors liked working with me better. And I did have to learn that You play a politics game with the people you work if you want to get ahead. Right. So at that job, the way for you to play the game was just to be nicer. Right. Which obviously we've talked about this is very gendered. Yeah. And the way that women play the game is different than the way men play the game. And often when women play the game, they can't get as far as they want to. Right. The game changes depending on who you are. Right. But you have to at least acknowledge that there is a game. Like if you don't acknowledge the game, you're not going to succeed, at least within the structure of most workplaces. Right. And that's the real value of some of these tools is keep having the good ideas, but also know there's extra stuff that you need to do for people to really hear and implement your good ideas. Fun. And now it's time for Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes. All right, Francesca, what is your not fully formed idea that you want to share with the world this week? Yeah, everybody needs to know this one. Um, When you are at a restaurant, say you're at a business lunch, uh, and the waiter asks you whether you would like sparkling or still water, in some regions they call it tap water. It's also known as just the the free water that comes out of the faucet. Um, Get the sparkling water. You're an adult. Come on. Like, be real. It's not, it's, it's better. It's a more special experience than drinking water. And just getting the still water just makes you seem cheap. Uh, it's probably not that much more expensive to just get the fizzy stuff. This is how I know I'm not an adult. I 100% always get the tap water. Right. But that wouldn't it feel like just special and kind of <laughs> naughty and just like, just really cool if one day you were like, go ahead, bring me the fizzy stuff. Your life is so exciting. Yeah. No, I'm pretty wild. <laughs> that all right. Yeah. Get the sparkling water. Becca, what's your happy take? I want to stand up for airplane food. Oh boy. If you are traveling and you're flying on an airplane, first of all, I always pay for a drink, an alcoholic beverage, depending on the time of day. Yeah, you have to it's the only way to get through the flight. And it's just not that expensive. It's Okay. That I have to back up. It's 
$7 for a drink in New York City. That's about par for New York City prices. I understand not everybody lives in New York City. It's more expensive than a drink, say, from my hometown. But Okay, but you're defending the food prices, too? I'm also defending the food prices and the food quality. If you buy something in the airport, it's probably going to be similar quality, similar prices than on the plane. So why don't you just buy something on the plane? And it makes it special, just like your seltzer half-baked take. Okay. Okay. I can buy that. And this has been Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes. So before we go, we have some exciting news out of Game Plan HQ. We now have a voicemail line. Yeah, and we want you to call us with your half-baked takes. So leave us a message and we might use it on the air. And the number for that is 212-617-0166. And thanks for listening to another episode of Game Plan. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at RZ Greenfield. And I'm at Francesca Today. You can tweet your half-baked takes to at Game Plan. And if you like the show, please head on over to iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and rate us and review and subscribe. It really means a lot to us. The show is produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Henriksen, head of podcast. It's Alec the Cape. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Also, once I was in the Puerto Rico airport and it was $35 for a chicken sandwich. So was it a good chicken? sandwich? No, it was horrible. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.